a good morning Christ Church or whenever you are using this worship guide uh, at home with your family. Hope that uh, this finds you well and finds you really ready to dive into God's Word together. It's such a, a pleasure to come together and to continue in our story as we look at uh, Elijah and Elisha and what God's doing through these two prophets. If you haven't uh, taken some time to read the text there in 1 Kings 20, I'd just like to go ahead and give you an opportunity to pause and go back and read those selected verses uh, right now. Well, I think that it's important for us to just do a quick overview because this First Kings 20 passage is not a passage that a lot of people are, are very familiar with. It doesn't make it into a lot of uh, the Bible's best hits. It certainly uh, is not in children's storybook Bibles or, or those sorts of places. Um, and it's kind of an odd uh, story. It's, it's very different in the way that um, it outlines uh, who God is and how he's at work. But I think we'll find some very common themes, um, some things that are really important for us as we move forward in thinking about Elijah and Elisha and these Old Testament stories. And I'm not going to read through all this, but I do think an overview is a good idea. So here we have Ben-Hadad uh, who is coming to, to take the Israel's kingdom from Ahab. Now we know who Ahab is. We're well familiar with him at this point. But Ben-Hadad is the king of Syria, and he is coming into Samaria to take uh, this kingdom. He asks Ahab, hey, can I take these things from you? And Ahab just says yes. He, he relents pretty quickly. And I think uh, Ben-Hadad realized he didn't really ask for enough. So he asks for more. And that's when uh, Ahab, King Ahab of Israel, begins to have some second guessing and asks the rulers and elders in the, the, the village there, the town, you know, should we do this? And they say no. And so he tells and sends the messengers back and says, we're not going to do this. And uh, through some word exchange, uh, Ben-Hadad says, we're going to come. We're going to take these from, from you. And then an unnamed prophet shows up and appears to Ahab and says, Hey, Ahab, just so you know, God is going to give you victory over Ben-Hadad and the Syrian army. And that's what happens. Victory is had by this small remnant of Israel over this large Syrian army. But then after that, we realize that the prophet comes back and says to him, Hey, God says that there's going to be another time when they come back for you next spring. So you should be ready. And they do. They prepare. They get ready. They actually move north into the territory to, uh, to meet the Syrian army. And again, God uses Ahab and the servants in Israel to defeat the Syrian army. After that, uh, Ben-Hadad and his servants come to King Ahab to try and make some sort of treaty. Now, now, God wants Ahab to get rid of Ben-Hadad. This has overtones in the Old Testament. We think about even in, in Joshua and Judges when God was moving his people into the land. He was saying, please get rid of the Canaanites. Get rid of these people. But Ahab, who is married to Jezebel, a Canaanite woman, spares King uh, Ben-Hadad and says, look, let's just make a covenant. In other words, let's just be at peace with each other. I mean, this is the complete opposite of what God had told him to do. He is doing. And because of this, uh, we meet another couple of prophets. One is asks the other, hey, can you strike me? 
the reason he asks him to do this uh, is probably for theatrics, right? We see later he is going to stop Ahab on the road. And he's going to use this visual representation for Ahab to see and to witness what he has done uh, to the Lord. But that prophet doesn't listen. He doesn't strike him. And so we get this kind of strange prophecy that says you're going to be struck down by a lion. And as soon as that prophet walks away, he's struck down by a lion. Now, there is a connection to a previous story in 1 Kings 13 where this exact same language, this exact same situation happens. We'll parse out why that might be important later. And so here, that's where we're left. And here is the story that we have in 1 Kings 20. And on one sense, I've been thinking about this, and as I prayed through it, it really feels like an epic. There's war. There's uh, secrecy. There's uh, the use of, uh, of small, defeating large. There's, um, in the sense of like David and Goliath type stuff, there is this strange story of a lion striking down a prophet for not listening just one time. There's a lot of different uh, thematic things going on in this text. I think it's important that we see one aspect that holds all of this together. Certainly there are other things we could see. But it's that God is sovereign through all things. God's sovereignty, it reigns and rules and, and he uses his power uh, to, to bring about his plan and, and to work out his promises in this text. Oftentimes, as we think about this, we wonder where do we fit into these things? And this is ancient Israel. This is a king and prophets and armies and Israelites and Syrians. Here we are in Grand Rapids, Michigan or in the United States nonetheless. How do we fit into this plan? Well, as I've been contemplating this text, really thinking about it, I find myself identifying with Ahab. I find myself identifying in this king who's been appointed and to lead God's people, who's been anointed by God. Yet he doubts and he pushes back. He thinks God's plan is silly. He, he questions God. There's been a group of us at Christ Church who've been uh, listening to some of Francis Schaeffer's lectures. Francis Schaeffer is a, a now dead theologian, um, has some connections to Christ Church in the past. And he was really good at helping us understand where Christ and culture come together and how Christ is over culture. He had this, this profound way of speaking and writing that really met people where they were at. You know, but one of the things that really... Uh, that aided Schaefer in this is that he had a real sort of uh, crisis in his life. I mean, he was really doubting the trueness of Christianity, where he was doubting, you know, is this true? You know, is there a God? And if there is a God, is Christianity actually true? And now, obviously, he did come out of that saying and affirming that uh, Christianity was true and that that was the truth. And so what that points out to me is that anyone, all of us, whether we're theologians and pastors or whether we're faithful Christians that are staying at home with our kids or working in business places, we can doubt. And we can push against God's plan in this world. And we identify with Ahab. We are like Ahab, especially when things don't match up. 
that God chooses to use servants to defeat the Syrians. When Ahab hears that, he kind of questions and says, what? He doubts God's plan. He doesn't think that's probably going to work, but it does. But God is sovereign over all things. He'll use who he'll use. He'll show mercy on whom he wants to show mercy. His plan is his plan. And so what do we do with that? Well, I think the way that we answer is by looking to Christ. Because God's sovereign over all things, we look to Christ and we say that Christ, it's with him that we have our primary allegiance. It's with him that we orient our whole lives. It's in Christ then which informs us in the way that we think about our plans, that we think about the way that we relate with one another, the way that we think about who we show mercy to and grace to like God does in this passage. Our primary allegiance is to Christ. And today we're going to look at this text and, and we're going to see God's sovereignty working out in three ways. His sovereign power, his sovereign plan, and his sovereign promise. And through that, we're going to find what allegiance to Christ looks like. We're going to find how we can then live that out to take that truth, the truth that God is sovereign over all these things and uses his power, his plan, his promise uh, to work in this world. It orients and shapes the way that we live and the way that we uh, work out our own uh, lives through our allegiance to Christ. So here's the first point, uh, sovereign powers. And this is God's powers answering the question, what is God doing? And there's three things we've seen here. You know, God's power is at work, that he's doing something in this text. Just because uh, there's a, a hiatus from the main prophets, the one that which we've even named our series after, Elijah, and his successor, Elisha, God's still at work. He doesn't need a main character. In fact, God is the main character in this text. It's not about Elijah. It's not about Elisha. It's not even about a named prophet per se. God uses unnamed prophet in this. But God's power is at work. It's about God's power. It's not about the power of other people. And God's power is in all people. So unnamed prophet, check. We've got that. A wicked, evil king who's going to lead Israel to, to win battles? Check. We got that. God uses this king, King Ahab, whom we're well familiar with by now, uh, the son of Omri. We go back to uh, 1 Kings 16. We find that he's evil. He's done more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him, any of those being the kings. And remember, this is the northern kingdom of which none of the kings ever matched up to what God wanted for his kings. Deuteronomy 17 sort of lays out uh, what God requires uh, of his kings as Israel is looking for them. So he says, uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 16, The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt. See, this wasn't about just having a lot of horses. Horses represented power. Horses represented clout. Horses represented uh, having uh, lots of material things. And God's saying, that's not the type of king that I want you to be. Or I don't want you to lead my people back to Israel because I said you're going from there. You're not to return. 
the kings are not to take many wives, or his heart will lead be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It's to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. Not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. And none of this matches Ahab. Ahab does none of these things. He has many wives, right? In our text, we see that when Ben-Hadad comes, he says, I want to take your best wives as an indicator that he must have had many wives. He also said, I want to take your silver and gold. And the fact that he is okay with allowing that to happen means he must have had plenty of it, right? He must have had enough that it's okay for Ben-Hadad to come and take some of my silver and gold. There's plenty where that came from. We do not see King Ahab as an archetypal kingdom that God, king that God wants for his people. See, Ahab is not like the king God wanted over Israel. In fact, he's more like Saul, who we meet in 1 Samuel. Saul uh, being the first king that that is called, and, and we see that he has this terrible uh, story arc. And he uh, falls, he, Saul falls, uh, he spares King Agag's life, right? As this is the, the, the enemy, the, the outsider that's coming to take over Israel at this time. And he keeps the good things for himself. And then he receives judgment from the Lord. See, Ahab is more in line with King Saul than he is with any other king. So God's power is at work. It's in all people, but it's also in all places. Uh, verses 23 and 25 of our text show us that this is at play. So after they had defeated them the first time, the Syrian army, uh, the servants of the kings of Syria said to him, to their uh, leader, to Ben-Hadad, their gods are gods of the hills, and so they were stronger than we, but let us fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And do this, remove the kings from each of his posts, and put commanders in their places, and muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot. Then we will fight against them in the plain, and surely we shall be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice and did so. But as the narrative goes on, we realize that God's not just a God of the hills. He's a God of the plains as well, because they defeat the Syrian army again. God's power is at work in all areas. I think we find ourselves questioning God's power. You know, do I allow God to work in the ways that he wants to work? Like when he wants to use unnamed people and show mercy on people like King Ahab. I think we tend to find ourselves also seen uh, in this Syrian thinking that God is a God of the hills, but not a God of the plains. And so God, likewise, is a God of my religious life, but he's not a God of my political life or my work life or my family life. God's a God of my visible life in the way that I, I present myself, the, the Bible knowledge that I can spout off, the, uh, the, the way that I hold myself, the way that I treat other people. But my invisible life, when no one's watching, God's not a God of that. He doesn't care. He doesn't rule there. I can do what I want. 
Remember, don't let the right hand see what the left hand is doing. In other words, uh, don't show off to show off. Our hearts are to be oriented into God's ways, just as God outlined for his kings in Deuteronomy 17, that God's law, God's good news to us, God's everything that he wants is to be written on our hearts and is to be taken with us everywhere. We can't have Syrian thinking. We can't think God rules in some areas, but not in others. See, a God is God over all things. Christ is in and moving through all things. At Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a beautiful hymn written about Christ. Now he's preeminent. How he is before all things and in him all things are working together and hold together. God is very interested in all of our life. He's very interested in our the way we do and think about our politics. He's very interested in the way that we do and work out our invisible lives, the lives that no one sees. He's interested in the way that we post things on social media. He's interested in the way that we talk to and about our neighbors. See, God's power is at work in all of our lives. And why? Why is God's power at work? That leads us to our second point. This is God's sovereign plan. It's answering the question, how does God work? And what's his end goal? What's his telos in this? God is a God of good news. We know that. In this text, they did not yet have Christ. We have. God has given us Christ to bring us the good news. But in this text, Ahab, who's this evil king, actually gets good news from the prophet. This is a little bit surprising, right? The prophet comes to him uh, there early on after he finds out that they're going to be in war with the Syrian army. And the prophet says, Thus says the Lord, you have seen the great multitude, right? Behold, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So we have his plan and we have his purpose for his plan. See, God is going to bring justice. He is going to help Israel succeed over the Syrian army because Israel is his people. He's behind them. But he's also doing this so that they would know that he is the Lord. They're doing this so that Ahab may know that he is the Lord. See, Ahab is stubborn. Ahab's eyes are closed. He doesn't realize it. We find this out at the end of our passage. That the king of Israel went to his house vexed in Solon and came to Samaria. He was led back into his house disappointed that he uh, things were going to be taken for him, that his life was going to end, which does come later in chapter 22. See, he thought, because he was anointed and appointed as king over Israel, that that made him right in God's eyes. See, but instead, God's showing him, look, I want to show you that I'm the Lord. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to bring you good news. But there has to be a response. There has to be a response. And Ahab did not respond. So it's God's plan. But, but he also, in his plan, uses the shame to uh, the, the shame, the, the weak to shame the strong. He uses that which is small to defeat that which is large. We see that in our text, but this is also an overarching theme in the Bible. Think about where Israel began. It began with two people, Abraham and Sarah. 
Let's not to mention that Sarah was barren. God used what was weak, what, what was barren, that there was no life in Sarah in terms of being able to birth anything. God said, I'm going to make a nation of you. And then we find later on in the story, Moses. Moses, this uh, stuttering uh, person who, who is called by God to stand in front of Pharaoh, the big king of Egypt, and to tell him to let God's people go. He uses the stuttering to do that. He uses uh, weak judges like Gideon uh, to, to, to shame them, right? When the Midianites come, Gideon hides in the wine press. Yet he is called as a judge to lead God's people in that appointed time. David, the smallest, the shepherd boy, defeats the largest, the Philistines, Goliath. And it's not just in these Old Testament overtones, but also in the New Testament. We see Jesus, born of a virgin Mary, testimony of women on the resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. Remember women at that time that their word was not admissible in court. Yet Christ's ascension, Christ's resurrection is built on the testimony of women. God will work his plan sovereignly through so many people. He brings about good news and he uses these weak and broken vessels to do these things. Both of these truths come together beautifully in Christ. Jesus is the one who has come as the Messiah. And that's good news. Jesus, a carpenter born not of nobility, comes as the royal king from a lowly place to a high place, born in a manger, sitting at the right hand of God. Jesus came to serve rather than to conquer and to defeat. He was a shepherd, not a military general. See, this is upside-down kingdom thinking. And that's what God is always at work doing. He is always breaking our stereotypes and our narratives for how he works, for what his plan is and what his mission is and how he's going to do that. Do we recognize the way that God chooses to work in this world? Do we recognize the way that God chooses to work in our own lives? Do we have eyes to see or do we not like Ahab? Do we recognize that God is the Lord, that our allegiance is to Christ and it's in Christ in which our lives are shaped and oriented for the rest of our world? God chooses broken, insignificant vessels like you and me to bring about his gospel message. He wants to use us, and he will use us, as long as we have eyes to see and we're not like King Ahab. So God has a, his sovereign power on display through this text, showing us that in our allegiance with Christ, he'll work his power through the world, through whomever, through wherever and however. And he has a plan. He has a plan that he is working out using broken vessels to bring about his good news in the world. But God also has a sovereign promise. This is answering the question, you know, what does God require? 
Well, he requires uh, allegiance. He requires devotion. He requires nothing but our 100% all inness to him. And we see this in a couple of ways in our text. Primarily, and we've talked about this, we see this in King Ahab. King Ahab has eyes and he can't see. He is blind to what God's doing and what God requires. He knows, he's well familiar with Deuteronomy 17 and the way in which he's supposed to be a king. But because those things are to be taken from him, because he's to submit them to God and to listen to the things that he is doing, he's vexed. And this is where uh, that strange story at the end of our text comes in, a a prophet that condemns Ben-Hadad's release. So remember, uh, after the second uh, war and battle, when Israel defeats Syria, Ben-Hadad and and Ahab have a little meeting in a chariot, and, and they make a covenant. And this is not what God wanted. God wanted him uh, to get rid of him. Uh, to to put him out, to defeat Syria once and for all, because this is God's land, God's people, and there's no room for compromise here. But Ahab relents. He doesn't do that. In fact, he makes a covenant with Ben-Hadad. He says, I'll make you and I'll let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with him and let him go. So then a prophet has come to to condemn him for this. And we get this story then of one prophet talking to another. Then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, because he had asked him, strike me, uh, to, so he could do his work to show um, Ahab what it was like. He says, behold, as soon as you have gone from me, a lion shall strike you down. And as soon as he had departed from him, a lion met him and struck him down. This is reminiscent of 1 Kings 13, where uh, a prophet, again, does not listen to that of which the Lord says. He disobeys the word of God. Verse 26, And when the prophet who had brought him back from the way heard of it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the word of the Lord. Very similar language. Therefore, the Lord has given him to the lion, watch, which has torn and killed him. So this prophet disobeyed and the lion tore him up. What's going on here? What do we want to say to this? Well, I think we can see that God is working through these people, his plan. And the fact that what he requires is full obedience, full devotion to him. You have uh, two ends of the spectrum. On the one hand, you have Ahab, who just continually pushes against God and continually is not devoted to the way of Yahweh. And then on the other hand, you have this prophet who, in an instant, uh, disobeys the word of the Lord. Both meet their demise. One we've already learned of. The other comes in chapter 22. So what do we learn? God requires full devotion full allegiance to who he is. Now, thankfully, the God that we follow is a merciful God, a loving God who wants to bring us into a right relationship with him, so much so that he brought his son to be that mediator for us. You see, in Ahab, we have an imperfect king who could never mediate between God and his people in any perfect way. 
And in the unnamed prophet that died by the lion, we have an, an imperfect prophet who could never mediate between God and his people. But in Christ, we have the perfect king and the perfect prophet who mediates for us a relationship to, Christ, to God that brings us to him, that allows us to, to enter the holy of holies, that allows us to have a relationship, that allows us to repent of our sins and to know that they are forgiven because the sacrifice has been made. See, we can't sit idly by like Ahab. It's easy to do. We can't disobey like the prophet as much as we want to. We can't do it all all on our own. That is where Christ comes in. Christ came into this world as that perfect mediator, as the king of kings, as the perfect prophet, as the perfect priest. And he lived a life proclaiming the gospel in full harmony with God's plan, unlike Ahab, in full harmony with God's uh, uh, laws and statutes, living a sinless life, unlike Ahab, unlike the kings of Israel and Judah. He's the true king, the true prophet, who laid down his life for you and me. He's the true king who rose on the third day and ascended to sit at the throne beside God. And he intermediates for us now. You see, Jesus is a royal king. And this is the promise of Scripture, that God's going to give us this Messiah, that God's going to give us the one that could bring all of his people together. That would bring uh, and expand Israel beyond a nation to all the nations, spreading it to the Gentiles like you and me. Those of us that are not Israelites are Jewish by blood. See, God is saying, I need your devotion. And it's to my son, Jesus. And it's through Jesus that we have a right relationship with God. Such a beautiful picture. Such a merciful God. Such a, a beautiful way of, of bringing his sovereignty to bear in all of our lives. That he would give his son to us. The one with him whom he loved. The one with whom he was well pleased. The one who died on behalf of us, for us. See, the good news is that Jesus came as the royal king. I love these words in the letter to the Hebrews, talking about the the supremacy of God's son and his royal tenure over us. He says to the angels, Do they ever say that you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be a son to me. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels win, angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. See, the kings like Ahab, they'll end. They pass on. There was 20 of them in the northern kingdom, and none of them lasted. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is not what we get from the rule of Ahab. 
You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Christ is the one with all these things come together. He's the king that we needed. He's the king that we need. He's the prophet that we need. So through this text, we see that God is sovereign through all things. And our response to that is to fall in allegiance to Jesus, to that king, to that prophet. And so may it be so. May we do that. May we go into this world knowing that our allegiance is primarily to Christ. And that orients everything else in our life. That Christ has brought us into a right relationship with God. And that the power and his plan and his promise to us are going to be worked out in this upside-down kingdom. So let's go out and do that. Fall on our knees. Devote ourselves to Jesus. And to love the plan and to love the power that God has for us in this world. Let's pray. Father, your word is good. Even as you work through obscure passages like 1 Kings 20, we know that you are at work. We see your power. We see your plan. And we see your promise to your people. We know that you are bringing all these things to bear, bringing all these things in our life so that we may fall on our knees to follow Jesus. Lord, we uh, submit to you in great humbleness that we often don't do that, that we want to rule our own lives. But may you remind us that Jesus is our king. And that's great news for us because he is the one who is merciful. He is the one who is loving. He is the one who died for us. We thank you. And we pray all of this wonderful news in Christ's name. Amen.